Hello and welcome. My name is Howard Ryland and I am the Deputy Editor of CBD Online at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Today we are joined by Dr Chris Daly, who is a consultant psychiatrist and Deputy Medical Director at the Chapman Barker Unit Inpatient Drug and Alcohol Service, where he has led the development of the award-winning Radar Pathway. Chris has a special interest in substance misuse and dual diagnosis. Today, we are going to be discussing how to effectively manage alcohol withdrawal in the acute inpatient psychiatric setting. Welcome, Chris, and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Great. So, alcohol withdrawal is obviously a very common problem that any psychiatrist working in an inpatient setting will encounter. To start off with, it would be helpful to hear a little bit about the guiding principles of assessing and managing alcohol withdrawal safely in that acute inpatient psychiatric environment. Yeah, so the, the main principles that we need to do, obviously, are in relation to taking an, a, an adequate alcohol history. I'll come back to talk about that. Identify those who are at risk of developing alcohol withdrawals so that we have that in the plan right from the start being able to assess the immediate risks in relation to uh, the withdrawals so that we can plan a safe physical detoxification from alcohol and very importantly prevent some of the serious side effects from alcohol withdrawals such as delirium tremens and Korsakoff's psychosis and withdrawal seizures. So we'll be talking about all of those as well within the talk um, and then if we do get any of those serious complications about how to treat them. So those are the things that we're going to go through today and finally talk about maintenance uh, and what sort of things we can be thinking about in the acute adult setting. Now obviously I work on an, uh, an inpatient drug and alcohol detox unit um, as you've already identified we have 36 beds there we have a lot of experience and obviously the staff are all very experienced so I'm aware that on some adult acute settings that level of experience not be, might not be there so I'm trying to give some simple outlines as to what needs to happen. So in terms of taking the, the alcohol history to help set this up in the first case, obviously there are a number of reasons why a patient with potential alcohol withdrawals might be presenting to uh, an adult psychiatric unit. They may present particularly with severe withdrawals when they uh, arrive, or they may, as part of their mental health problems, also be uh, alcohol dependent and potentially during the admission go into alcohol withdrawals. Um, in addition to their other mental health problems, be that psychosis or severe depression or, or whatever the primary admitting concern is. So some of the things that you need to do, first of all, are uh, you can consider the use of some screening tools. The two most widely used would be the audit, which is the alcohol use disorders identification test, which is a very simple um, a 10 question screening test. And a score on that greater than 20 would give you an indication that there's a risk of um, severe de alcohol dependency and therefore a risk of going into withdrawals. The other widely used tool is the uh, SADQ or the Severity of Alcohol Dependence Questionnaire uh, which gives you um, a, a range of outcomes including a score between 15 and 30 which would be moderate withdrawals which in the inpatient setting are likely to need um, uh, um, a medication to help to treat them and then over 30 being severe withdrawals those individuals you need to take particular caution with and be thinking about um, the use of detoxification medication but obviously the, the, the baseline as well as those screening tools which can be useful is actually taking a detailed 
alcohol history. What you want to try and do is identify um, the um, historical use of alcohol, but also the current use of alcohol. That includes the number of units and the pattern of use. And particularly for those with alcohol withdrawals, if they're continuously using, they're more likely to go into alcohol withdrawals. The other issue to talk about, and this is again very important in terms of risk assessment, is experiences of previous alcohol withdrawals. This is both when medicated, that's very important to ask about previous medicated alcohol withdrawals, and also the sorts of withdrawals that patients go through either by accident or design when they run out of alcohol at home. And there what you want to look for is a, a, an escalating severity of the withdrawals. So for instance, you might get somebody who starts with just a sort of mild uncomfortable feelings, a bit of anxiety the first time they go through withdrawals, the next time they're getting a more obvious tremor or nausea, uh, the next time that tremor or nausea is getting more severe, and then they develop more significant withdrawal symptoms. And obviously taking a history particularly of any episodes of delirium tremens or withdrawal seizures is extremely important. If they've had those before, their risks of going into uh, more significant withdrawals are much higher and we need to we need to think about that in the management plan. The other thing to consider is the physical health of the patient uh, and obviously we, we're aware that alcohol affects nearly every system in the body and, and also is a very important thing to assess in when it comes to thinking about treating alcohol withdrawals during an acute admission. We need to look for signs and symptoms of, of, of physical health problems and obviously here we're talking particularly about things like liver disease and involvement, uh, we're looking at neurological problems associated with that, gastrointestinal problems. So really running through a full physical examination and identifying any of those risk factors early, looking for frailty, looking for any cognitive disturbances as well. Also take a history of any other illicit drug use or over-the-counter drug use. Um, particularly, for instance, benzodiazepines can complicate uh, an alcohol withdrawal if somebody is using those alongside alcohol and certainly uh, using it alongside illicit drugs such as heroin, um, uh, opiates um, and cocaine are very important things to assess before starting a detox. You can assess things like readiness to change. Um, that, that can be important in terms of trying to get someone motivated uh, whilst you're doing a detox. But very often in an acute psychiatric setting, there's an imperative to do the detoxification anyway. So don't not do it just because the person doesn't seem motivated for change. Obviously, the alcohol withdrawals needs to form part of the detailed risk assessment that you'll be doing anyway on the inpatient unit. And ideally, you should do a range of uh, blood investigations too, particularly liver function tests, gamma GT, full blood count, urea and electrolytes, uh, prothrombin time, and magnesium level. The last one is not you, you often done, but can be very useful as it predicts some of the more severe withdrawal outcomes later on. Um, most of those tests will indicate the level of liver disease and other physical health concerns. So it's important to take uh, those as part of the routine assessment on admission. And then finally, and very importantly, a breathalyzer. It seems like a very simple tool, but actually it's a really important component of the assessment and breathalyzing someone both on admission and regularly during the first couple of days is a really important way of making sure that we know that the withdrawals are progressing in the right way and when and how to start the medication. So those would be the key elements in relation to um, alcohol uh, uh, assessment. The other thing obviously is for an awareness of what the alcohol withdrawal symptoms are and the ICD-10 classification of this would be 
an indication of the cessation or reduction in alcohol consumption. Uh, so remember, people can be withdrawing while they've still got alcohol on board. And then there's a series of 10 symptoms uh, for alcohol withdrawal, including tremor, sweating, nausea and vomiting, tachycardia and hypertension, psychomotor agitation, headache, insomnia, malaise, hallucinations and illusions, and grand mouse convulsions. Those are all symptoms of um, um, alcohol withdrawal so that people can make an accurate um, uh, diagnosis when someone comes in, in terms of asking those questions. Fantastic. So a lot to think about in the assessment. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the principles of management now in terms yep. of how you would actually um, develop a, a care plan for somebody who you've identified is at risk of withdrawal in that acute inpatient setting, as you say, um, which may not be a specialist unit and the, that individual may have come in for um, treatment of uh, another problem. Yeah. So the, the important thing in relation to, to this is to consider the, uh, the management ideally with benzodiazepines. These are, there are a number of drugs that have been used to help treat um, uh, alcohol withdrawals. So for instance, in Germany, they use much more carbamazepine, but generally across the UK, the drugs to be used are either chlordiazepoxide or diazepam. So long acting uh, benzodiazepines are the treatment of choice. I'll take you through the way we do it at the Chapman Barker in, 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 in a unit, uh, unit in a minute. But uh, in terms of the types of withdrawal regimes you could be considering um, probably the most commonly used is a fixed dose schedule where you would start at a level for instance in chlordize epoxide of 20 milligrams four times a day that would be retained for uh, three days at that level because that's the period of time over which the most severe withdrawals will start and then a reduction over the subsequent four days uh, to, to zero so dropping down to 15 four times a day 10 four times a day five, four times a day and five twice a day before stopping. That would be a standard um, fixed dosing schedule. Now, it depends on the skills of the staff. There is the, the, the advice from NICE is certainly to use withdrawal assessment rating scales. And the most commonly used is the CIWA or the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment, which is a relatively simple tool to use. And we've, uh, in terms of the uh, um, information alongside this uh, webinar, there is a, um, a, a series of tools, so you can see these tools there. They may well be available in your hospital uh, uh, as we speak. Um, but I'd certainly strongly recommend the use of um, the CIWA or other alternatives, like there is a Glasgow scale as well, for instance. But uh, at the Chapman Barker unit, we use the, the CIWA. And there are two ways that you can use this. Um, there's a, a way in which you can do a symptom-triggered detoxification. So for individuals, for instance, where you're not sure about the significant level of use and the withdrawals may be not so uh, severe initially, you could then look at uh, triggering off prescription of chlordisopoxide only when the CWA score is greater than 10. And this would indicate at least moderate withdrawals and therefore a regular uh, assessment of the CWA uh, during that time and then prescribing as a, um, an as required basis on the uh, triggering by the symptoms. The other way to use that is also in what's called a front-loading um, uh, detoxification regime where you use the CWA to trigger off the doses of medication every one to two hours in the first 24 hours. And in this case, generally people use diazepam because of its longer uh, half-life and its active metabolite. Uh, and so that can be an alternative way of, dis of uh, administering 
uh, a detoxification. You do need to be cautious, obviously, uh, as we mentioned before, a number of our patients will um, have physical health problems, which might make the risks of using long-acting benzodiazepines more uh, problematic. And particularly if you've got elderly or those with liver disease, you might need to use a shorter acting benzodiazepine. And in general, what we use at the Chapman Barker unit is uh, oxazepam, uh, which has a, a shorter half-life and uh, uh, less active metabolites than either chlordiazepoxide or diazepam. And the um, regime in terms of uh, the equivalencies is 10 milligrams of diazepam to 20 milligrams of chlordiazepoxide to 30 milligrams of oxazepam. So for instance, you you would think in an elderly person of using lower doses. The alternative can be to use just lower starting doses of the chlordiazepoxide or actually just doing a symptom triggered um, regime initially to work out what the adequate dose is to prevent the uh, onset of withdrawals yet not be over sedating. Uh, so those are certainly some considerations to make. Um, what NICE say is that um, the selection of an inpatient detox should be for individuals who um, have had a history of delirium or, or seizure or, or at high risk of those, uh, those who uh, abruptly stop drinking independent individuals and have a lower threshold for admissions for the elderly, those with cognitive impairments and those who are frail. And then again, the treatment should be a benzodiazepine, hepatology advice if there's decompensated liver disease, and um, one of those three regimes, either the um, fixed dose, the symptom triggered, or the front-loading uh, doses. So I thought, if, if it's okay, I'll take you through the regime as we do it when someone arrives at the Chapman Barker unit. So we've carried out the full assessment. We've done the breathalyzer reading. We've identified the individuals who we consider to be at high risk of DTs or seizures, as we've discussed before. The admission breathalyzer is very important and the initial CWA score is also very important. If the breathalyzer reading is greater than, now remember with breathalyzers, there's, there's two types. There's a blood alcohol breathalyzer reading and there's a breath, a breath alcohol breathalyzer reading. So you, you need to be aware of which of those two it is. If the blood alcohol concentration is what comes up on the breathalyzer, if that's greater than 200 milligrams percent, or on the breath alcohol uh, reading of uh, 87 micrograms percent, then and the CWA is less than 10, then that is an individual who's still intoxicated. Their alcohol levels may still be going up, and therefore we wouldn't start the detox in that individual. We would repeat the breathalyzer and repeat the CWA in an hour. Remember, it can be risky to start the detox as well too soon if they've just had a big drink in the car park before coming into the unit. Um, and their alcohol levels may be going up. The second scenario is if the uh, uh, blood alcohol reading is 200 milligrams percent or the breath alcohol 87 micrograms and the CWA is greater than 10, i.e. this is an individual who's already showing signs of withdrawals at high levels of uh, alcohol in the bloodstream. Two things to consider here, A, start the detox even though there's a high breathalyzer reading and secondly, to consider this to be a high-risk detox. This is an individual who's already showing withdrawals um, at, at a high level. We once had a patient who um, came in with a breathalyzer reading over 400, and when his breathalyzer reading got down to 200, he had a seizure. His minimum level that he needed was greater uh, than, uh, for most people, what would be significant intoxication. So basically the rule is anytime the C was greater than 10, commence the detoxification. 
and that would be chlorodized epoxide in our case 20 milligrams four times a day and then we would continue to repeat the CWA after that for the first 24 to 48 hours triggering off extra doses of um, uh, chlorodized epoxide if the rating was above 10. Um, if the individual once you've started your detox is having regular extra symptom triggered doses of chlorodized epoxide then you need to think about adjusting the standard regime so it may need to go up to 30 milligrams or higher um, and obviously regularly review on a 24-hour basis how the withdrawal is going and any emerging other problems as well as obviously the routine uh, assessments of the mental state that you would be doing any, in any case. So that would be the plan in relation to managing the detox. Great, thank you. I and mean, that's really helpful to have that overview of different regimes that you can use, different approaches, and also obviously the um, NICE guidelines. And there will be a whole host of resources available on the website alongside this webinar for people to download if they're interested in more detail. Now, alcohol withdrawal can have some potentially very serious consequences, and you've talked about some of those, delirium tremens, withdrawal seizures, and Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. How can we recognize and treat the complications of alcohol withdrawal? Okay, well, the first thing is what we've already reiterated is anticipating these um, serious consequences and medicating adequately beforehand to prevent their onset. At the unit that I am, I, will, I always consider if someone has delirium tremens, then we've not done the detox right. I think we should always try and prevent that. There's a serious outcome from DTs and indeed from seizures, and we should try our very best to prevent these from happening. DTs is the most severe uh, withdrawal event uh, related to alcohol. Uh, its symptoms emerge generally within the first 48 to 72 hours after cessation or reduction in drinking. And the classical triad is a severe tremor. So not just a slight tremor, a severe tremor. Hallucinations, classically visual or uh, auditory, but sometimes in other modalities as well, and a confusional state. So they are delirious. Often associated with secondary delusions uh, and agitation. Often associated with insomnia and chronic insomnia during DTs is a poor prognostic indicator. And also autonomic overarousal, so tachycardia, uh, hypothermia, hypertension tachypnea. These are all symptoms suggestive of uh, delirium tremens. You need to, as I say, anticipate from the history. If they've had previous episodes, that's very important. And when you're looking at studies where they've looked, tried to positively predict who could get DTs, there are a number of factors, but probably the most important ones are a previous history of delirium tremens, a previous history of withdrawal seizures, an individual who's Breathalyzer reading is high and they're already showing signs of withdrawal, which we've already discussed in terms of the regime. Uh, those who've got an intercurrent infectious disorder, um, a sort of chest infection or a UTI, and those with a tachycardia on admission. So if you think of those five factors, a tachycardia being, say, over 120, um, uh, then, then in those five factors, those are individuals you should consider to be in a positive prediction range in terms of um, delirium tremens. Tends to also occur more in the male sex and in older patients and those who also usually use sedative hypnotics. They're not necessarily predictive but they're also predisposing or associated factors uh, in relation to, to that. Um, so if, if an individual um, is at risk of uh, delirium tremens we start them on a higher dose detoxification. 
we um, identify those risk factors, so the tachycardia, the high uh, withdrawal starting with the high breathalyzer reading. You look at inv active investigations for potential other causes of infection, so a white blood cell count or a CRP can be very useful in this. And if they're in that high risk classification, then you should consider a higher starting dose of the standard regime. So what we tend to use is 40 or 50 milligrams four times a day of chlorodice epoxide. Now those unfamiliar with that think that's extremely high, but remember the adaptations that the body has made in getting tolerance means that those levels of benzodiazepines are needed to control. You should always keep assessing, obviously, in terms of the risk of over sedation and benzodiazepine toxicity, but you will need to use higher doses. And we also, as I say, correct magnesium levels. So if the magnesium level is relatively low, we would uh, add in magnesium aspartate. And sometimes in, in, in very low cases, below 0.4 on magnesium, you may even need to think about an acute hospital transfer for magnesium parenterally. Um, now, if we don't achieve our goal of uh, preventing the onset of DTs, then the management is as follows. You need to continually assess for causes of delirium. We've had some very complicated patients, one who had delirium tremens, a chest infection, vernica corsicovs, and a subdural hematoma all at the same time. So remember, these patients are complex, often have a range of physical health problems that could be causing their delirium. You must remember fluid balance is extremely important. These patients are losing a lot of fluid. So daily uh, assessments of use and ease um, and magnesium. Also remember very importantly that 40% of patients with DTs will also have vernica corsicovs. So we automatically assume they've got vernica corsicovs and put them on the high dose vernica corsicovs uh, Paprinex regimes. The treatment of choice from NICE for um, established delirium tremens is lorazepam using two to four milligram doses um, and can be used intramuscularly as well if not able to take orally. Prominent psychotic symptoms should use um, haloperidol one to five milligrams. Um, you may need to consider rapid tranquilization. Some of these patients can be extremely agitated and you may also need to obviously consider the Mental Capacity Act and the Mental Health Act and have clear criteria for transfer to medics. Many acute wards will find this difficult to manage. At the Chapman Barking Unit, we've got quite significant experience, so we tend to try and keep our delirium tremens patients there. Most of them respond quickly, but some can go on for quite a lengthy period of time. So that's the DTs. In terms of the other uh, major um, uh, risk factors, uh, sorry, uh, withdrawal events, is the withdrawal seizures. These again occur in the first 48 hours tonic clonic seizures occasionally you get runs of seizures or even status of occasionally had status but there's a significant role for low potassium and low magnesium in these patients as well so make sure we've assessed and if necessary corrected those and also uh, individuals who've had a previous history of withdrawal seizures or who have epilepsy are at higher risk as well and again the primary treatment is to prevent the onset of the seizure so Again, giving higher doses of chlorodice epoxide, maybe 40 milligrams um, or diazepam 20 milligrams four times a day. If they're on an anticonvulsant, we continue it. There may be a role for carbamazepine in these patients, but that's not established and not something we do routinely. And you need to be able to make sure that you've written up patients for your standard regimes for treating uh, an acute seizure. So that could either be rectal diazepam uh, buccal midazolam or uh, IM lorazepam, depending on your local procedures. 
um, and NICE recommend uh, oral or parenteral lorazepam as the treatment of choice. And also there's a role in that preventing further seizures once you've given it. So those are the, the those are those issues. Um, I can also talk about um, uh, Vernica Corsikovs. Now, this technically isn't a situation associated with withdrawals, but patients who are going through withdrawals are at higher risk of precipitating Vernica Corsikovs. Many of our patients are at uh, a distinct risk of uh, thiamine deficiency. This is due to inadequate diet, problems with vomiting and diarrhea, so they're not absorbing the thiamine, increased metabolic demand because they're drinking, increased demand because they are causing damage to the body and therefore needing RNA and DNA, which requires thiamine. And then finally, damage to the liver reduces the storage of thiamine. So there's a whole number of reasons why individuals with um, uh, alcohol are at risk of this. And therefore, you always need to consider parenteral thiamine. Oral thiamine in individuals who are deficient is not enough to replace their um, thiamine stores. So we, we classify it into th three areas. We've got the ones who have an incipient Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. Now, remember, Wernicke-Korsakoff is the classical triad of confusion, ataxia, and ophthalmoplegia, but that only emerges in about 10% of cases. So you've got to keep a high index of suspicion because this is something we need to reverse acutely, and if we wait too long, they can end up with permanent brain damage um, and Korsakoff psychosis, which can have devastating consequences. So if an individual presents with confusion, and that's plus or minus ataxia, ophthalmoplegia, etc. We we make the uh, diagnosis that this is incipient vernicus. If they're in an at-risk group, so they're very heavy consumption, they've got poor diet or weight loss, and they've got other signs of thiamine deficiency, such as peripheral neuropathy, we consider them as in the at-risk group. And then the lower risk group are those who are well nourished with no history of severe withdrawals, and that maps onto the treatment regime. So. The incipient group need the highest doses. This is uh, uh, IV, Pabronex, two pairs, that's four ampules, three times a day in a 100 mil bag of saline each time. Uh, and that's really important. And then carry on the IM preparation of Pabronex afterwards, uh, after those uh, three, three days. If someone gets into DTs, we extend that uh, IV use for another two days as well. If they're in the at-risk group, uh, then we would give one pair of Pabronex ampules uh, and we would give those IM. Or if someone's got a blood dysgrasia or they're very underweight, we may consider giving that IV and you may as well give uh, two pairs on those instances. And then everybody gets the lower risk doses, which is thiamine 50 milligrams four times a day. You may also need to consider the risk of other vitamin B uh, deficiencies and you can give vitamin B complex BCO strong, but however, that's not recommended through NICE uh, as it stands or the BAP guidance as it stands at the moment. So those, those are the, um, the main sort of complications of alcohol withdrawals that you need to consider in terms of treatment. That's really helpful to outline those major complications and you know, as you say, prevention is, is better than cure, so identifying those yeah. early on. Yeah, that's very, very, very true. And understand that one important phenomenon to be aware of when understanding alcohol withdrawal is kindling. Can yep. you explain what is kindling and what impact does it have on managing alcohol withdrawal? 
I suppose the concept of kindling originally emerged from um, experiments with uh, in, in animals of ECT, where they would give subthreshold stimuli uh, uh, that wouldn't cause a seizure. But if you gave that repeatedly, it would lead to a seizure. This is the sort of kindling effect. What we're talking about with alcohol withdrawals is that going through an alcohol withdrawal is actually a toxic event. You've got glutamate overactivity. You've got um, um, calcium rushing into the cell, which causes cell death, etc. So it's a toxic event. And therefore, this, the buildup of repeated cycles of withdrawal um, has this same kindling effect. So what this means is the severity of alcohol withdrawals, and this includes the complications, is related to the amount of alcohol consumed, which is fairly obvious, higher doses, higher risk, the duration of consumption, the number of years at which that level has been used. But very importantly, probably most importantly, the number of previous withdrawal episodes. So if someone's been drinking very heavily, uh, for uh, um, um, a number of years and had five detoxes, that's more risky than someone who's been drinking at those levels for much longer, but has only had two detoxes. So taking a good history of the number of times people have had detoxes, uh, both uh, medicated and unmedicated, is very important. And it seems that if somebody's had more than five detoxifications, their risks of having seizures, for instance, are much higher. Um, so that's a direct correlation. So Take that careful history as we described at the start. You've got to consider, obviously, with this scenario, we're talking about patients who are being admitted to the acute psychiatric ward, so they're going to need to be there anyway. But in the community, you can consider, do I need to do this detox or not? Um, and the best thing is to try and wait until someone's prepared, engage with alcohol treatment services before doing that. But it's also about trying to limit detoxifications because, obviously, the more detoxes we do, the more damage. Um, and obviously that can cause cognitive dysfunction. There is some preliminary uh, uh, advice around neuroprotection and acamprosate, which is one of the drugs we use for maintenance, can be used to help um, uh, protect some of the issues relating to, to kindling. So that's the concept of kindling and why it's important to take that history sequentially of how the withdrawals are progressing with time. Okay, so as always, history, absolutely fundamental to get that right. Yep. And I just wanted to return to that theme of prevention again. Um, are there other things that we can do to act early to minimise the harm from withdrawals? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing, obviously, is, is the, if you can get the first detox right and the person is able to achieve sobriety safely and then engage with um, support services afterwards, alcohol treatment services afterwards, that's the best outcome. So one of the things that's really important to consider is not just this detox, but what's going to happen afterwards. Um, and referral to the local alcohol uh, services is really important. So, for instance, with the radar project where we take admissions direct from A&E of people presenting usually in alcohol withdrawals. Um, one of the most important things we do, as well as doing a controlled detox, is engaging them back with their alcohol services. So that should be a priority on the acute psychiatric setting as well. Also thinking about those other wider supports, so things like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, there's a lot of online um, support websites, etc. So thinking about that full package of care when someone gets discharged to prevent further relapses in the future is very important. And then finally, the BAP really strongly advises the consideration of maintenance assisting medications, so things that you can take to uh, help someone uh, reduce the risk of relapse and treat some of the problems. Now, here we're talking about specifically 
acamprosate, naltrexone and disulfiram. Also, uh, a lot of specialists are now using baclofen as another alternative um, medication that can be used for individuals who wish to maintain um, sobriety. And the BAP advice is that you should always consider these medications when you're discharging someone following a detox. And in the case of acamprosate, maybe even starting it as early as possible to prevent some of the, to, to assist some of the neuroprotective uh, benefits of that medication. So those are some of the other steps that you need to consider um, in relation to the admission for detoxification and what should happen afterwards. Great. So not just thinking about that detox in the acute sense as an isolated intervention, but actually thinking that in terms of a, a package of care um, and ongoing support. Absolutely. De detox is not uh, a single event. It's part of an overall pathway of care. And that's really important to uh, establish. Fantastic. I think that's a, a good point to end on. Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. As I mentioned before, there'll be a host of other resources and further reading available on the website. And if you would like to gain CPD credits for this, please complete the short module test on the CPD online website. Thank you. My pleasure.